First of all, can everyone hear me? I think I'm having some technical difficulties. I have to redo that. Hello. Okay. All right. Well, welcome everyone to the Truth Perspective. Uh, looks like I was having some problem with my speakers. Um, I couldn't hear my intro music, but if you guys can hear me, that's all right. Do I sound as clear as we usually do? Or is it kind of fuzzy? Maybe I'm using the wrong microphone. No, I think I'm good. All right. Well, um, my co-hosts are otherwise indisposed today, so it's just going to be me today. But um, I've got the call lines open, so if you want to call in with your questions or comments, just feel free to do that at any time. Otherwise, what I'm going to be doing today is just giving a short introduction to Jordan Peterson's book, Maps of Meaning. I was originally planning on doing a series of potentially videos or uh, shows like this on the different chapters of the book after I'd finished reading it, but um, I started reading it and I got the audio book to go along with it, and already in the first like, 20, 30 pages there was so much in there that I decided not to wait until I'd actually finished the book. So I'm going to be taking a look at it uh, you know, bit by bit and piece by piece as I go along. And before I do that, I'd, just, I'd really recommend anyone interested in the book to get the audiobook if they can. It just came out um, earlier in July, or was it June, on, um, um, that, actually on Peterson's birthday. And the good thing about the audiobook is that you hear him, well, the book itself can be kind of dense, kind of like political planerology, and it's a lot easier to follow if you hear him actually speaking the words, because the emphasis and the intonation um, conveys a lot of meaning and makes sentences that might not otherwise be clear a lot clearer. So I found that that helps. But to just get into it, um, Peterson starts out the book um, in the preface and gives the his kind of primary motivation for writing the book, and he does so by asking a series of questions. And it goes like this. So he writes... <clears throat> Why were the forces of NATO and the Soviet Union continually at each other's throats? How is it possible for people to act the way the Nazis had during World War II? Underlying these specific considerations was a broader, but at the time ill-conceptualized question. How did evil, particularly group-fostered evil, come to play its role in the world? So Peterson gives uh, a bit of an autobiographical sketch of how he came to ask these questions, and it goes back to his time in school, well, and before school, when he believed in certain theories and thought a certain way. He was a young socialist, part of the, the kind of the left-wing, one of the big left-wing parties in Albertan politics in, Cal in Canada, and he thought that the answers offered by just the commonly accepted answers he found out, well, he accepted them, but he found out that they weren't quite, act, weren't quite adequate to the situation at hand. They didn't explain what he was looking to answer. And he only came to that conclusion that they weren't adequate after believing these theories for himself. So he writes, for example, that economic justice was at the root of all evil. This is what he believed. 
as far as he as far as I was concerned. Such injustice could could be rectified as a consequence of the rearrangement of social organizations. So this was the this was his belief, and this is the common belief of many that get into political life and even that just try to answer the questions of what to do about the situations they find in the world. And that the what it all comes down to, this is the classic Marxist view, is that it all comes down to economics. So every kind of social problem and political ill can be brought back to the root cause of economics, basically class warfare or you know, differences in class, differences in economics. It is the rational self-interest that goes into economic decisions that creates class differences and conflicts and that then lead to political systems of oppression of one class over another. And that that is the, that is the end point as far as analysis goes to understand the way uh, human societies are and why things go wrong. But he was soon disillusioned uh, with such pat explanations, um, particularly from the departments of political philosophy, because that's pretty much all that the the political science, those are the only theories on offer by the political scientists, basically. And essentially the, the, the basic view of that is that people's primary motivations aren't purely rational. Um, people's motivations aren't purely rational um, and they're not determined by economic pressures. Well, actually, I should have rephrased that. That is the the conclusion that he came to because um, the the economic philosophers, the political philosophers would say everything is rational and determined by economic pressures, but um, Peterson came to the conclusion, no, that that is not the case. Rather, he writes, real motivation had to lie in the domain of value, of morality. The political scientists I studied with did not see this or did not think it was relevant. So in other words, such questions could probably only be answered through fields like psychology and religion. And uh, Peterson probably couldn't have been aware of it. Well, he couldn't have at the time. But around this same time, this was in like the early 80s, early to mid 80s, that was when Lobachevsky was working on writing Ponderology while he was in New York. And he was putting the final touches on the, the manuscript of that book. And trying to answer the same questions and coming to, uh, well, I'd say not the same conclusions, but similar conclusions about the nature of what Lobachevsky called macrosocial evil. Remember what Peterson had written before. He wanted to figure out how evil, particularly group-fostered evil, came to play its role in the world. And of course, that was the exact question that Lobachevsky was answering in Political Ponderology. So uh, Lobachevsky, as many of our listeners will know, had been working on those questions for decades, um, working in Poland with a group of scientists behind the Iron Curtain and hiding manuscripts from the secret police, suffering multiple arrests and torture, and Lobachevsky himself being exiled to America eventually. And according to Lobachevsky, many of those scientists were actually disappeared or killed um, simply for being caught doing this kind of research and asking the questions that, uh, that they were. So in Ponderology, which was only published, you know, 20-something years later in 2006, uh, this is what Lobachevsky wrote. <clears throat> if a collection were to, were to be made of all those books which describe the horrors of wars, the cruelties of revolutions, and the bloody deeds of political leaders and their systems, many readers would avoid such a library. 
Foremost among, the, among these books would be those written by witnesses to criminal insanity, such as Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon and the Solzhenitsyn volumes Turgid with Human Suffering. The collection would include works on the philosophy of history discussing the social and moral aspects of the genesis of evil, but such a library would nevertheless be missing a single work offering a sufficient explanation of the causes and processes whereby such historical dramas originate, of how and why human frailties and ambitions degenerate into bloodthirsty madness. Any attempt to explain the things that occurred during the first half of our century by means of categories generally accepted in historical thought leaves behind a nagging feeling of inadequacy. Only a ponderological approach can compensate for this deficit in our comprehension as it does justice to the role of various pathological factors in the genesis of evil and at every social level. So, of course, Lobachevsky attempted to write just that book that would be missing in such a library, and it looks as if Peterson had the same intention and uh, the same motivation to, to write such a book. <clears throat> now, just noticing what I read right there, um, I, left, uh, you know, I left out little bits and pieces just to get that paragraph, but two of the books that... Lobachevsky recommends um, or makes reference to in there is Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon. First, I'd recommend this book if, uh, if anyone's interested. It is a novel um, written by Arthur Kessler, and it is, it's a novel inspired by the, like one of the great purges, basically, in Stalinist, uh, the Soviet Union. So it follows a main character who used to be one of the, like, you know, high-level party officials who gets arrested, and the, the novel takes place with him um, getting arrested and then spending time in his cell before his um, eventual execution. And you get, uh, you get an idea of just the, the situation, what it was like. There are great scenes with flashbacks that kind of flesh out his situation, and um, I just really recommend it. It's a great, greatly... It's a well-written novel, and it's uh, very interesting. It's got some great quotes in there. And, of course, he mentions Solzhenitsyn, who is uh, one of Peterson's favorite authors. But the problem that Lobachevsky points out is that works like that, they they seem to be missing something. Like, they offer great descriptions. They, they, they can put you in that situation so that you get a, a really visceral understanding of what was going on. But when it comes to under, to actually explaining it and to getting a complete understanding of how and why all of this came about, there is something, there's just something missing. Um, and that really has to do to, that really has to do with getting down to the psychological level. And that is, that comes back to why Peterson was, was, wasn't satisfied with the answers on offer at the universities, for example, with uh, you know, like pol uh, political philosophy and sociology and economics is that all of these studies, they, kind of, they, reduce, they essentially reduce human nature to this single, um, this single explanation that doesn't account for everything else in human nature that goes into why we do the things that we do. So humans, for example, aren't just simple economic creatures. We don't just make economic decisions. And there's so much more going on in our bodies and in our minds and in our motivations and drives and instincts than that. And there's more to human behavior than just uh, the influence of society and, uh, and social pressures and social statistics and things like that. And that really has to do with getting down to the psychological level.
And when you get down to the psychological level, you realize very quickly that you have to take into account the variety of psychology um, and of psycho psychological types because you can generalize and find the, the, the human universals that, ever, that apply to everyone. But when you get into that, you find all kinds of traits that are distributed in various different ways, like along a bell curve. Um, and when you get into those human variations, that's where things get tricky, that's where things get complicated, and that's where um, Lobachevsky focuses his attention. Now, not having read um, all of Maps of Meaning, I don't know for sure what direction Peterson will go. Maybe you guys can, uh, can let me know, call in, or, or uh, let me know in the chat. But I, I'm from just from listening to, to Peterson speak, I don't think he goes quite as far in that direction as he could. But um, as I find out, I'll speak more about that as we go. So one of the things that Peterson observed is, you know, as a young man, was that socialist ideology served to mask resentment and hatred bred by failure. Conveniently, the demands of revenge and abstract justice dovetailed. So this reminds me of another concept that you find in Lobachevsky, because he too called socialism an, an ideological mask, and similar to the mask of sanity worn by psychopaths. And Lobachevsky even argued that the use of such an ideological mask is consciously and malevolently cynical. So he wrote, when we observe the role of ideology in this macro-social phenomenon, like a pathocracy, totalitarianism, quite conscious quite conscious of the existence of this specific awareness of the psychopath, we can then understand why ideology is relegated to a tool-like role, something useful in dealing with those other naive people and nations. It is extremely difficult for a psychologist to believe in the value of any social ideology based on simplified or even naive psychological premises. If such an ideological movement could be stripped of its ideology, Nothing would remain except psychological and moral pathology, naked and unattractive. So, such ideologies like that, um, they exploit and manipulate the motivations of a wronged group, for instance. Um, whether that um, sense of being wronged is real or just, be, or just perceived. And they also exploit the values of those who adopt the ideology. So, the feeling of victimhood liberates the individual from the need to abide by uncomfortable moral principles, as Lobachevsky puts it, in their fight for justice. And the question this comes to for me is, who, who would join uh, the ranks, who tends to join the ranks of political activists? And this is what Peterson concluded. They seemed to live to complain. They had no career frequently and no family no completed education, nothing but ideology. They were peevish, irritable, and little in every sense of the world. In every sense of the word. Anyone who was out to change the world by means, uh, by changing others, was to be regarded with suspicion. The temptations of such a position were too great to be resisted. Ideology enabled the believer to hide from his own unpleasant and inadmissible fantasies and wishes. So Lobachevsky called this, um, this mentality uh, pathological egotism, which derives from repressing from one's consciousness any objectionable, self-critical associations. 
So Lobachevsky writes, questions such as, who is abnormal here, me or this world of people who think and feel differently? These questions are answered in the world's disfavor. In other words, it's not me, it's the world that's crazy. Such egotism is always linked to a dissimulative attitude with a psychopathic mask over some pathological, pathological quality being hidden from consciousness, both one's own and that of other people. Now, so the, the, the thing that, that uh, the connection I saw there was that um, the, the idea behind pathological egotism, according to Lobachevsky, or an essential part of it, is the hiding from one's own consciousness any, anything objectionable or self-critical. Basically, people who are pathologically egotistical, they cannot admit to himself their own flaws. And when those flaws are pointed out to them, they it's like water off a duck's back. They cannot admit to it and will then often project that onto others um, around them. And that, what ideology does is it provides kind of a, just a secondary a secondary way of effecting that exact process. That's why Peterson wrote that ideology enabled the believer to hide from his own unpleasant and inadmissible fantasies and wishes. So it's basically like by adopting an ideology, you can, you can let those unwanted or unacknowledged or you know, unseen parts of yourself have free reign without having to accept them, without having to, to really take a look at yourself and take responsibility for those aspects of yourself. It's you become part of the mob, part of the hive mind, essentially. And uh, so when, when thinking about pathological egotism, um, with that in mind, Peterson writes this. He says that rejection of the unknown is tantamount to identification with the devil. Such, re such rejection and identification is a consequence of Luciferian pride, which states, all that I know is all that is necessary to know. This pride is totalitarian assumption of omniscience, is adoption of God's place by reason, is something that inevitably generates a state of personal and social being indistinguishable from hell. And this is what happens when pathological ideologues grip a nation. So rejection of the unknown, that is essentially what egotism is, self-importance, arrogance is the idea that what you know is all you need to know, that you have nothing to learn, that you already know the answers. And of course, that's what an ideology does, is it provides the answers in a ready-made form. So if you're talking to a hardcore, die-hard communist, they have an answer for everything. And the same goes for you know a postmodern neo-Marxist. There is, they have a pat answer for everything, that they, and any, any problem or any criticism that you throw at them, they can fit it into their overly simplistic, psychologically naive worldview. And that is a problem. Because by reject, rejecting the unknown, well, this is uh, the, the lesson that Peterson lays out in the book, is that rejection of the unknown, not willing to go into that, that unknown territory, is what leads to a situation, as he writes, indistinguishable from hell. This this pride in in one's own sense of omniscience, as if 
these people know everything, as if they have nothing more to learn, as if they're not encountering a, a vastly complex situation that humans haven't been able to, been able to figure out for their entire, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of years history, and of course all of evolution before that, as if, oh, just in the last, what, 50 years, they've managed to figure it all out, they have all the answers, they know everything that can fix the situation, basically. They have the solutions because they understand everything, and that's just the height of hubris. Um, so I think Peterson is quite right to call it a consequence of uh, pride equaling that of Lucifer, um, mythologically, of course, I'd say. Um, but regarding these activists and revolutionaries themselves, you know, the actual individuals involved, um, Lobachevsky writes, in a, in a civilization deficient in psychological cognition, hyperactive individuals driven by their own internal doubts caused by a feeling of being different easily find a ready echo in other people's insufficiently developed consciousness. Such individuals dream of imposing their power and their different experiential manner upon their environment and their society. Unfortunately, in a psychologically ignorant society, their dreams have a good chance of becoming reality and a nightmare for others. In other words, they just want power, and they tend to have personality disorders. Now, this is something that I haven't heard Peterson um, go into in depth, but he does mention it every once in a while. For example, there was a, a podcast, I think it was the H30 podcast, <clears throat> one of the ones he does with a, a comedian. And in that one, he was talking about the time that he was giving that, um, that talk at, um, I believe it was a, a university in, in Canada, where you had the activists like, um, you know, banging, sh banging shoes on the stained glass windows. And, um, and there was that woman that showed up with a garrote, like basically, I guess, implying that she was going to, uh, well, it was a visual, a visual threat, basically, uh, of strangulation. And he said that while he was there, <clears throat> he said most people that come to, you know, protest him tend to be just naive. Yeah, the H3H3 podcast. Thanks, Red Fox. Um, the... He says the people that tend to go out to protest like this um, just tend—they—they they tend to be naive college students that don't really know very much. They're primarily there because their professors have told them to come. They don't really have a, a thought of their own, and they're—they gen generally don't have totally evil intentions. They're just dumb kids who think, you know, it's kind of cool and they're doing the right thing. But they haven't really thought about it. They don't really know what they're doing. But he says within it, within every one of those crowds, there's one or two people where you know he says he looks at them and he just knows that they're psychopaths. They're just out to cause trouble. They're just out to to create chaos. And so, I think that this is this is where Peterson could go if um, if he just paid a little bit more attention to it. But because he he realizes that there's a that there is a difference, you know. There are there are different types that kind of get associated with um, hyper activist movements like this. But I think one of the advantages of Lobachevsky is it's it's probable, I think, that the only way to come to the conclusion that or the conclusions that Lobachevsky came to would be to actually live it, because 
it's only in that in that scenario where where the things kind of um, lay themselves out in a pattern that can then be recognized that you can't really get necessarily by just reading books about it, um, by reading accounts, like for example, by reading Solzhenitsyn, to really get an idea of what's going on. I think you have to live it, and that's why I think it's really important to to actually read Lobachevsky's book because that because he gets into the um, I, I think of it, I think about it kind of as like um, uh, magnetic, like iron filings on you know on a piece of paper, and you move a magnet underneath it. So if you have like a um, a collection of different sorts of uh, of matter, of you know dirt or sand and and iron filings, and then you 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 move the 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 magnet, and you can you can move the 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 magnetic particles out, and it kind of things take on a shape, right? They 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 separate apart and when you're just looking at the mixed blob of stuff you can't really make a differentiation of who's who and what's what but when you when you take that magnet and you move it in there then you can see what's what and then you can you know add you can add various other processes to 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 um separate out all of the different types of material that are in that you know handful of of stuff and that would be my one criticism of Peterson, not necessarily from the book, because I haven't finished it yet, but just from the, the way he tends to talk about these things, that I don't get the sense of that, that division. Um, I can get into that a bit, I think, because there's the idea that, um, you know, all the Germans were Nazis, for instance. And I think the, the point that Peterson makes, and it's a good one, when he's talking to his students, when he's talking to people in general, is he tells them, well, you think you would be the, the hero, right? You think you'd be the hero in Nazi Germany. Well, the odds are you wouldn't be. You, would, you wouldn't be the one to you know, help people out. You'd be the one going along with the crowd, at least statistically. And not only that, you might even be one of the people who would enjoy making other people's lives miserable, torturing them and murdering them. And uh, the thing is, is that you don't know. Most people don't know. And I think that's what, that's one of the things, one of the realizations that I think that Lobachevsky had early in the book when he's writing about how when the communists first kind of took over in Poland and they had the situation in his university where he called it transpersonification at the time where people that had previously been friends and, and colleagues, they seemed to go through this kind of personality transformation. And they become the they became the kind of hardcore adherents to the new ideology, and they totally went along with the program. And it was only about, but the the observation that Lobachevsky made was that it was only about six percent. And it seems like um, so there's a statistical thing going on there. So what is it about those that six percent? And I think if you if Lobachevsky were to have interviewed. Um, one of those people before um, that experience, just like Peterson observes, if he would have talked to them, they probably would have thought, oh, well, you know, in a, in a horrible situation like that, I would, I'd be the hero, right? And it turns out that they really just didn't have any self-knowledge. They were of the type that would become a monster. And, you know, they didn't know that, but it, you know, it probably didn't um, affect their conscience to any great degree when they'd find out because that probably was in their nature the whole time. But it required a, um, a catalyst, you know, a situation to bring that out in them. 
And I think that's a valid point. You know, if you take a, a hundred random people off the street, they're probably all going to say that they'd be the hero in Nazi Germany because that's the, everyone tends to have a, a, a higher than, a higher than accurate self-image of themselves. And that is what is socially um, advantageous or that, that, that's the, that's the impression. That's the ideal that uh, society tends to, to instill in people is to, to get people to be good because being good would be good. But when the, you know, when the stuff hits the fan, that is not how things play out. You get this separation, you get these metal filings, right? Um, and so what Peterson, I think, isn't clear, as clear as he could be about is that in that situation, there are a variety of, of types of reactions. So I think about, for, for instance, the Milgram experiment where the vast majority of people in under a certain set of conditions will give the electrical shock, um, you know, simply because of the, the situation they're in and the, the presence of authority and the, the lack of, um, the lack of other peers providing example, an example of resistance, but you'll have different reactions within those, let's say hundred randomly chosen people. So you will have the, the six, for, for instance, in that hundred, that might really enjoy it. They'll have absolutely no problem with it, and they might find for the first time that they enjoy it. You know, maybe they didn't really realize beforehand how much fun it was to um, to deliberately and voluntarily uh, um, make another person suffer. But then there's this, you know, if you go along the bell curve, you have these majority of people who are going along with it, and how it uh, it really causes internal suffering for them they're going along with it but they're sweating they feel really uncomfortable they know that they shouldn't like some part of them knows that they shouldn't be doing this and it is not a pleasant experience for them yeah they go along with it but it it creates all kinds of stress inside their system um i'm just going to read a comment in the um a couple comments in the, the thread here because it's hard to to read them and speak at the same time so first there's one from the mechanic saying that he recently had a discussion with my 12-year-old where she smartly concluded that she in no way would be a hero were she living in Nazi Germany at the time, and it wouldn't be improbable that she would participate in nasty stuff out of fear of becoming the victim. Well, that shows a, a degree of, of self-awareness that I think is uh, rarer, rarer than it could or should be. That's great. And How to Be writes, Peterson mentioned the book Ordinary Men, how ordinary policemen transformed into murderers and they became physically ill during their transformation, a different side of the ponderological process. Exactly. Yeah, I haven't read that book. I've, I've, got it on, I've got it on my stack of books to read and I really want to get around to it. But that just, hearing about it and hearing um, the part that you wrote about How to Be... There, it reminded me of a part in Ponderology where he was talking about one of the times he got arrested, and he's talking to the, you know, the guards there, and he basically makes a joke to them, um, you know, a pretty biting and not really, you know, ha-ha funny joke where he says, oh, you know, well, look at you guys. Um, what, do you enjoy what you do? Because most of you guys end up in the, you know, in the mental institutions with, like, dementia. Um, you know, worse to that effect, I didn't, uh, I can't, I can't remember the exact quote. But the idea being that there are people that 
become part of this system for whom it is not their nature and it basically wreaks havoc on their systems because they're they're doing something that they know on some level isn't who they are and it uh you know it makes them physically ill it makes the it, and there's the the long-term effects of constantly um you know being part of this system to the point where you can, it can lead to dementia but there's also just the 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 part about being physically ill and going along with it you know being part of an execution squad and throwing up because it's so disgusting but still doing it anyways the point being i think that just that there are different human reactions there are those who enjoy it those who will do it even though it is not enjoyable and in fact is very um disturbing uncomfortable making you physically ill like causing depression and anxiety and then you then you have those few people who are the real heroes right that's the opposite end of the spectrum of the people who enjoy it and these are the people that were, will put their lives on the line in order not to uh, betray their own conscience and sell their own soul um let me continue on so Another theme that uh, that stood out for me in in these first pages of Maps of Meaning was um, what I'll call the the multi-levelness of some of Peterson's observations, both about himself and the world. Uh, of course, for those that know me, <laughs> um, multi-levelness that word comes from another Polish psychologist, uh, Kazimierz Dabrowski who originally taught at Peterson's alma mater, the University of Alberta, in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, this was slightly before Peterson attended there, so I doubt they ever met. And, you know, from listening to tons of Peterson and reading his stuff, I haven't seen him anywhere reference Dabrowski, so I don't think, well, I'm not sure if he's at all familiar with him. But Dabrowski's model of personality did personality development uh, was called the theory of positive disintegration and I'm just going to lay out some of the some of the things I noticed in the the preface that um, made me think of Dabrowski so the central idea of theory of positive disintegration is that moral development is only possible through inner conflict and so-called mental illness disintegration so this could be anxiety, depression, um, even psychosis. And th the, this idea is that the old you must die in order to be reintegrated on a higher level. And this process is either spontaneous or self-directed. So some people never experience it, or if they do, they simply reintegrate at the same level they were at before. And there are certain what uh, Dabrowski called dynamisms that are characteristic of each level and which advance one's development. So to use some examples from those autobiographical bits of Maps of Meaning, um, first one, in university, Peterson felt the impulse to stab the point of his pen into the neck of the student sitting in front of him and he wrote about this this impulse was not overwhelming luckily but it was powerful enough to disturb me now dabrowski wrote astonishment with regard to oneself and disquietude with oneself are the first dynamisms which shatter the secure structure of primitive integration 
Astonishment in relation to oneself is the preliminary stage of separation of the subject and object in oneself, a subject that wonders and an object to which this wondering refers. So right there in that little example, he, he lays out that this process is going on in his own mind. Um, uh, an ordinary, well, uh, a normal person, let's say, might have that exact impulse. Well, first of all, they might have that, imp that impulse and then just subconsciously um, suppress it or repress it so that it never actually rises to the, the level of conscious awareness. Or if they do, they might actually just go along with it and uh, do it like there's no there's no gap between the impulse and the execution of that impulse in a physical action so they'll just stab the you know the back of the person's neck and i think we've all met or if you've gone to public school you've probably seen kids like that right that the, they don't have a an internal break on their own impulses and they just go along with it now with uh with Peterson, so he, 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 even as a kid, he demonstrates this, uh, this inner dynamism of being aware of one's impulses and there being a type of inhibition on these impulses. But the, the primary thing about this example is the, the feeling that went along with it. And this was uh, a feeling, and a feeling that accompanied this observation, which was, quote, powerful enough to disturb me. So the, the, the experience of being disturbed with what can come up in one's own mind in the form of a motivation or a thought or a you know a, a goal or an aim that um well i, th I think maybe the, the fact that peterson experiences experiences this might not um well who knows i'm not going to put thoughts in his mind but a lot of people don't realize if they have this, this experience they don't realize that other people don't have that experience and that's the the point that dabrowski makes is that some people just don't have that internal separation. They don't have that that um, separation of subject and object in oneself, which is requ a requirement for self-observation. Um, so Peterson experienced this uh, subject-object in oneself quite sharply. Um, another example: Peterson was always a talker. You know, he according to his own testimony, he could talk your ear off, and you had, and you know, it was hard to shut him up. And But he suddenly found that he was unable to speak around this time. He wrote that, uh, more accurately, I couldn't stand listening to myself talk. I started to hear a voice inside my head commenting on my opinions. Peterson tells this story all the time. And it's how he learned to try to always tell the truth or at least not lie. Because this voice was like, well, what are you saying? You don't know what you're talking about, right? Well, whose opinion is that? Do you really believe that? And, you know, he'd, he'd think about it and be like, oh, no, I guess, you know, I don't really believe that. You know, I just heard that somewhere and I'm repeating it to try to make a point, to try to win an argument, try, to try to impress someone, uh, to try to give a, you know, a, a higher than accurate um, image of myself to other people. And that was annoying. Like, well, first of all, it's annoying to have that inner division, but it's also annoying to see that you, to see in yourself that you are doing something that's just so kind of below your own standards, but then you have to figure out, well, what are my own standards? And, well, that's what uh, cleaning your room is all about. So Dabrowski would call this dissatisfaction with oneself. And he wrote that it is an early form of the dynamism of valuation and is a potent motivator of conscious development. 
So it's only with this sense of dissatisfaction with oneself, this seeing something in oneself that doesn't live up to this some kind of inner standards that you have, whether or not they are um, explicitly and coherently laid out you know, in your mind. So if, even if you're not really super aware of your own hierarchy of values, there is this, just this nagging, nagging feeling that, you know, there's something about what you're doing and, and the way you're behaving that just isn't right, right? And that's dissatisfaction with oneself. So Peterson wrote, which part precisely of these two was me? In my ignorance and confusion, I decided to experiment. I tried only to say things that my internal reviewer would pass unchallenged. It took me a long time to reconcile, reconcile myself to the idea that almost all my thoughts weren't real, weren't true, or at least weren't mine. Now, Dabrowski defined subject-object in oneself like this. One of the main developmental dynamisms, which consists in observing one's own mental life in an attempt to better understand oneself and to evaluate oneself critically. It is a process of looking at oneself as if from the outside, the self as object. Now, this is inseparable from what Dabrowski called the third factor, um, biology being the first factor and social influence being the second. He wrote, The third factor is the dynamism of conscious choice, valuation, by which one affirms or rejects certain qualities in oneself and in one's environment. Now, tying that back to the to something I, I read just a bit ago, the, the third factor is a dynamism of conscious choice or valuation. So, um, Dabrowski had earlier written that dissatisfaction one's, with oneself is an early form of the, of the dynamism of valuation. So, Initially, you know, dis or the the idea of conscious choice and like inner inner valuation is expressed as dissatisfaction with oneself. It's like that's why you know I was describing it as this kind of nagging feeling that uh, that something's not right, right? It isn't totally, um, it isn't totally what's the word uh, <laughs> elaborated yet in your own mind, but then as it becomes more elaborated and um, distinct and defined. That is as you know, as the third factor, as conscious choice becomes a stronger dynamism in one's own internal uh, internal mental environment. So P while Peterson is going through all this, he's having just terrible nightmares, right? Where he's seeing all kinds of uh, nuclear destruction and gore and bodies torn apart and the people he loves and knows um, killed in just horrific ways, and he's having these you know, several days a week for just months, can't remember, years. And it was only a deep study of myth that made the those nightmares disappear. So he wrote, The cure wrought by this study, however, was purchased at the price of complete and often painful transformation. What I believe about the world now, and how I act in consequence, is so much at variance with what I believed when I was younger, that I might as well be a completely different person. So anyone familiar with Dabrowski knows that that's a, a pretty good description of what positive disintegration is. Um, more specifically, multi-level 
disintegration. Um, Dabrowski wrote that multi-level disintegration is a process of developing an authentic hierarchy of values from conflicts between higher and lower levels of instinctive, emotional, and intellectual functions. The conflicts are conscious since they involve the awareness of valuing one level over another. Therefore, they are conflicts of value. Now, Peterson lists three central questions that apply to the world as forum for action. This is an idea that we raised several weeks ago about his distinction between seeing the world as um, a world of objects and the world as a forum for action, for actually doing things, right? Which implies um, value, which implies one thing being more, um, more valuable than another or more desirable than another. <clears throat> and that's essentially what what we are when we're perceiving. We're not really perceiving objects, we're perceiving objects of value, not only in, in and of themselves, insofar as they are valuable in and of themselves, but as they are valuable to us and our own intrinsic value. It's all a relation of values <clears throat> and how they relate to each other. So these are the three questions that, um, that Peterson raises. What is, what should be, and how should we therefore act? So these are themselves multi-level questions. Um, this is Dabrowski again. Adjustment to that which ought to be is in some individuals stronger than their adjustment to what is. The reality of what ought to be is for them higher than the reality of what is. And concerns like that reflect multi-level disintegration within oneself. That disintegration of concepts and ideas and feelings and instincts into higher and lower categories that are consciously seen and understood as higher and lower and felt as higher and lower. The idea that um, when you're looking within yourself, you see one thing that is better than another thing, right? You see one thing that is more noble or uh, courageous or valuable or desirable than another thing. And you can see yourself, you know, acting out some, some basic drive or motivation that afterwards just leaves you feeling empty. Like you, you, you know, you, you know, you know, you shouldn't have done that. You know, you could be better. You know, you're not living up to your full potential when you're doing something, you know, that specific thing and countless other things, that internal dissatisfaction and, and then the subsequent um, elaboration of that hierarchy of values, when that becomes clearer and clearer in your mind, that is the process of personality development. Um, let's see. One more quote here. I've got this written down. I can't remember who wrote it. Oh, this is, okay, this is, uh, this is Peterson. So he wrote, active apprehension of the goal of behavior conceptualized in relationship to the interpreted present serves to constrain or provide determinate framework for the evaluation of ongoing events which emerge as a consequence of current behavior. Now that's a, quite a complex sentence, but let's just continue on and we'll see if we can figure out what it all means. The goal is an imaginary state consisting of a place of desirable motivation or affect it's a state that only exists in fantasy as something potentially preferable to the present. 
construction of the goal therefore means establishment of a theory about the ideal relative the ideal relative status of motivational states about the good this imagined future constitutes a vision of perfection so to speak generated in the light of all current knowledge at least under optimal conditions to which specific and general aspects of our ongoing experience are continually compared so peterson is describing here an ideal and the process by which we continually compare how that ideal is either being manifested or not and the degree to which it is being manifested and that is of course um, constrained by conditions like ongoing conditions and how how new events inflict or you know impinge on that manifestation of ideal throughout time and so there's this constant measuring and um this constant measuring to the ideal basically as something goes on and that is basically what the process of life in general is it's a constant comparing of how things are in the present to how they should be and they can only be compared to to the present you know as you as as things are now and now as it is now because the, that's the raw material we have to work with there's nothing else except where we are in the present um to not uh to not take into account the present and all its complexities and the actual relations between everything in the present would be to engage in some kind of um, ideology or some kind of utopian vision of the future for instance that doesn't take into account current conditions that like a, a utopist has an idea of what the perfect world will be and then seeks to um, seeks to impose that vision on the world regardless of the condition of the world as it is right now and that means that that vision will most likely will be imposed by force that is uh, a force fit solution it's basically that is um, pounding the 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 what's the what's the frame of a or what's the what's that word it's pounding like you know the, the the square peg into a round hole basically you have to pound it in and you're going to damage both the hole and the peg while doing it and in real terms that means people's lives so Dabrowski um, when he's talking about ideals he writes that some people have some people only have goals they don't really have ideals um, and that the the actual ideal is only accessed through positive disintegration um, Dabrowski wrote the realization of ideal gives meaning to one's existence thus the realization of ideal becomes comprehensible and necessary now when he's distinguishing between goals and ideals you can think about it this way like everyone has goals everyone says okay well I want this to happen and in order to get this I'm going to do a B and C and um, but that is something different uh, you know there are similarities between goals and ideals but they are when it comes down to it different things so an ideal would would leave out certain goals for instance or it would subordinate certain goals to other goals to create a hierarchy of them and to create a hierarchy based on a certain kind of value so I mean people also have hierarchies of goals they may say oh well right now eating is more important than 
you know, cleaning the dishes, then cleaning the dishes will be more important than eating. But there's nothing really, um, you know, moral about a decision or a hierarchy of goals like that. Like when it comes to to ideals, it really comes comes down to a a more all-encompassing vision of who you should be and how you should act in the world. And that, I think, has more to do with an interaction with others and a... Um, you know, a willingness to look at the at the self and how you are actually living up to ideals. Like to use that specific example with the goal of washing the dishes and eating, you there may be situations in which in which that is um, or fits into a vision of the ideal. But um, you'd really have to kind of be creative about that. You know, maybe if there were a situation where you really want to eat something, but there's something vastly more important that uh, that should be done, and not something that will you know, affect your, your career or your standing in the community in any kind of way, but that just is something that you need to do. And I think that, you know, anyone who has had an experience of it like that, that's all you really need to, you know, you know, we, we don't need to f think of something specific because we've all had a, or hopefully we've all had an experience like that where there's, you know, there's something you need to do and to, to put that off by, you know, maybe just eating that meal and washing the dishes it would make you feel dirty afterwards for not doing what you should have done, not doing the, you know, the thing that was in front of you that, that, uh, that you should have done, you know, as Gennaro 81, just put it in the, in the chat room. It's a higher level of categorization. I like the way you put that. So, um, on this subject, Peterson writes, sometimes mere alteration of behavior is insufficient. We must change not only what we do, but what we think is important. So this is developing a hierarchy of values, um, you know, which is essentially essential for personality development. And uh, Dabrowski, or he defines hierarchization as the process of developing or activating different emotional levels. It stems from conflicts of value, which reflect the existence of feelings corresponding to higher and lower values. That is, more preferred versus less preferred choices. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. A hierarchy of values is a hierarchy of higher and lower levels of emotions. So there we get into a, another way of looking at it. You know, I was talking about the difference between goals and I ideals. Well, there's also, you know, part of that is this distinction between higher and lower levels of emotion. So when is, you know, satisfying the, um, the hunger that you feel in your stomach less important than that, uh, you know, that emotional pull towards doing something that might be for someone else or it might be, you know, to someone else that, um, you know, as a result of a past mistake or, you know, there's this opening that you need to take in order to, to rectify a situation, to bring a relationship back into harmony or, or something that's just, um, you know, a part of what your conscience is telling you you should do. For example, you know you've got a you've got a, a choice to use an example from from Peterson's life, right? Um, he felt that he needed to say something about Bill six Bill C sixteen, and to the point where he was um, you know he was sitting in in bed late at night, sleepless, and he just thought, okay, I've got to do this, right? Now, if he were to go like another another couple days, another week, another month, and just continue, you know cooking his dinner and cleaning his dishes and r refusing to acknowledge that, 
that um, that ideal within him that he was not meeting, that would be a sin against his own soul. And that might be the way he sees it. Um, it's something that you can't not do in order to hang on to your own inner integrity. Um, now, Peterson gives quite a good mythological description of this whole process of personality description. Um, he lays it out in mythology as um, there's kind of like a mythological narrative where there is first the current or pre-existing state. That would be primary integration. And then there's the emergence of something anomalous and the dissolution of the pre-existent stable state into chaos. That's disintegration. And there is the reintegration of stability. That's secondary integration. Let's see. Oh, Joe wrote, something that shoulders responsibility that is not for your own immediate gain, or rather something that shoulders responsibility for something that does not involve your own immediate gain. Yeah, precisely. That'd be a great example. Um, because that, and that is part of the hierarchy of values and developing a hierarchy of values is that there are certain things that are, that are more important than your own immediate gain. And of course, there are people for whom their own immediate gain is the only thing that they ever pursue in life. And those are the kinds of people I think that are, are tend to be the ones in the example we were talking about previously in like a totalitarian system. They're the ones that get on board with the, with the system, never question it and go along with it even if they might also be some of the people that end up suffering as a result of it because they you know they live in a, they live an unexamined life and that life will you know lead to dementia in the end a, a situation indistinguishable from hell as uh, peterson put it um as a result of their refusal to um to examine themselves to examine their external world and to put those things that they would see in themselves and in the world into that categorization into that hierarchy of values. Um, another quote from Peterson. Involuntary exposure to chaos means accidental encounter with the forces that undermine the known world. The effective consequences of such encounter can be literally overwhelming. It is for this reason that individuals are highly motivated to avoid sudden manifestations of the unknown. And this is why individuals will go to almost any length to ensure that their protective cultural stories remain intact. Now, I think Lobachevsky described, described a similar process when he wrote, a disintegrative state provokes us to mental... I'll just go back. So this is Lobachevsky again. This, is, this isn't Dabrowski. Um, a disintegrative state provokes us to mental efforts in attempts to overcome it in order to regain active homeostasis. Overcoming such states, such states, in effect, correcting our errors and enriching our personalities is a proper and creative process of reintegration, leading to a higher level of understanding and acceptance of the laws of life, to a better comprehension of self and others, and to a more highly developed sensitivity in interpersonal relationships. Our feelings also validate the successful achievement of a reintegrative state. The unpleasant conditions we have survived are endowed with meaning. Thus, the experience renders us better prepared to confront the next disintegrative situation. 
Um, well, anyways, those are or were my thoughts just on the preface and some of the first chapter of Maps and Meaning. Um, now, I do have more, but if anyone has any questions or comments, um, just let me know in the next couple of minutes. Otherwise, we'll keep going. Um, I'll just read the one more quote from Joe in the chat room. He says, those are the people who will choose to eat dinner instead of tending to someone else's immediate need, for example. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, I just, uh, I've got, that just brought to mind an example. I'm reading, um, I'm reading another biography of Carl Jung, um, you know, after we did the show on Aryan Christ, um, I wanted to get a, you know, a bigger picture of what was going on there. So I got the, the biography written by Deirdre Ball, or Bear, sorry. Um, it's just called Jung, and it's this giant biography on Jung. But anyways, she had access to a lot of the documents that, uh, that Noel did, but also tons more documents like she had. Um, not access to everything, of course, but she did have access to the Young Archive, so she has, and she interviewed everyone that's still alive that, uh, that had any relation to him. And <laughs> that, um, I just, uh, there, there are tons of anecdotes in there about how, how Jung would be, behave with his family. And just to say that, you know, he, he was a good father just in the sense that, you know, he provided for his kids and he didn't seem to be abusive in any way, but he was very... He was very absent, um, I would say. He wasn't uh, affectionate at all. He didn't really... Kids were just kind of like around. Um, he didn't really have any interest in children. And um, he would play with them. But um, there's this, all kinds of stories about his dinner table habits and how you know dinner was like important and doing it a certain way was, was important and nothing else could impinge on that way of having dinner. Um, so, you know, no speaking, no interruptions. Um, you'd get yelled at if you broke the, the kind of ritual of dinner. And I've, you know, I've, I've seen people like that and I've, and I've read plenty of, or, you know, you can see it in movies or people whose houses you visit where usually it's the, the father who's, you know, he's got his, his rules for, for dinner. And even if there's something that's more important going on, that should be dealt with. It's like, no, everything, everything comes second to getting that food in his belly. And to, it, it's really, it can be quite a, quite a shock to see, you know, where people's priorities are at any given moment. And, but when people's, people's, um, you know, when their values like that are consistently, um, in a certain way, especially with, with regards to food, I just find that very, very, um, strange. Let's just put it that way. Um, how anyone can find food and dinner so important that it takes precedence over what are really life and death issues, if not literally life and death, then, uh, you know, metaphorically where you know, uh, a bad, meals are something you have at least once a day with your family if, if you're lucky. And to, to basically ruin those over a period of time in your life that cumulative, cumul, cumulatively will add up to, um, you know, hundreds and thousands of hours that you're spending with the people that you're supposed to be, you know, the people that you have to spend your life with, if you've got a family, then um, you're just creating, you're creating hell for yourselves and others, which is, just seems like such a waste to me. But um, that's what happens. There are people like that. Now, maybe I'll get into some... 
some of the ideas in chapter one of Maps of Meaning. Um, in this chapter, uh, Peterson introduces the idea... Um, check my notes here. Yeah, this is where he introduces the idea of the world not being a place of things, but rather a form for action, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, so I won't, I won't really talk about that because uh, we have talked about it before. But to get into what... Ad, to, to, maybe just to expand on that a little bit, um, to get into what objects as we perceive them actually are, I'd say that, um, you know, based on what uh, Peterson writes, that objects are less the stuff of our inner scientist, you know, that is, things that are dispassionately studied and cataloged without any real feeling or emotion coming into the process. Um, what they are, they're more like what props are to a film director. So, you know, what function can they serve what what function can they say can they serve in this scene? You know what? Uh, where will they be placed? What? Wh why have them? Why not have them? What? Uh, what role do they serve? And how they can potentially serve in our various potential futures and goals? So basically, what part they play in our own life script? Um, and this is what characterizes myth. That is meaning. But more importantly, it provides uh, a scaffolding for action, an ideal. Um, a template for how to live better lives individually and collectively. And as such, this is what leads to questions of morality. You know, how should we interact in the world and with the beings and the objects that we find in that world? Um, this is a quote from chapter one. The painstaking empirical process of identification, communication, and comparison has proved to be a strikingly effective means for accurately specifying the nature of the relatively invariant features of the collectively apprehensible world. Unfortunately, this useful methodology cannot be applied to determination of value, to consideration of what should be, to a specification of the direction that things should take, which means to description of the future we should construct as a consequence of our actions. Such, such acts of valuation necessarily constitute moral decisions. This problem of morality, is there anything moral in any realistic general sense, and if so, how might it be comprehended, is a question that has now attained paramount importance. And, of course, it's attained paramount importance because we've lost the ground for having any kind of objective morality that we can defend as being objectively real. And this gets into the the reason that uh, Sam Harris and Peterson are holding their series of debates, or they have held them. They did uh, four nights over the last uh, couple weeks, I think, in Vancouver and in somewhere in the UK. Maybe it was London. And that's the whole issue that they're getting into: is how can we have a um, how can we develop an, an objective morality, and how can we defend it? Basically, now. Scientific thought, um, scientific thought is a basically a description of what is, and it focuses its attention on objects and their transformations, um, the static and the dynamic, and you can see this in physics, chemistry, astronomy, neuroscience, but the products of science, these kind of bare descriptions of objects and processes, they don't tell us 
much or anything about how we should behave. Um, but the problem is, as Peterson points out, that even scientists who engage in this kind of descriptive act, they can't escape value because all of their motivations, um, they need to first be motivated. They, mo they have to be motivated to do something. They're acting out a narrative or a story, whether they know it or not. For example, you know, why study this and not that? Why classify this phenomenon as X instead of Y? Why judge these results as better than any other results? Um, when it comes, what it comes down to is that all scientific thought is premised on some goal, some value, whether that goal or value is implicit or explicit. Um, because without a value, a scientist would not feel that they should study one thing more than another. Um, they wouldn't study, they wouldn't value one set of results or another. And their implicit narrative might go something like this. Um, well, they're, um, well, the, their narr inner narrative might go something like this. Um, for example, I want to go in this direction, so I should study this, and I should study it in this manner, and judge my results according to these criteria. So basically, every stage of the process is governed by some value, and it's measured according to some yardstick. Some descriptions are better or more accurate than others, and some theories are more adequate to the facts than others. These are very like basic, um, fundamental level presuppositions of the act of engaging in a, a scientific endeavor. And at the most basic level, I think we wouldn't do science if we didn't, first of all, value truth. And if we didn't play out this narrative of searching for that truth, because it is a narrative, it is a process. It's not a static thing. Um, but here we run into that problem. As Peterson says, we no longer believe our stories, our justifications for engaging in this narrative. Um, and he paraphrases Nietzsche, you know, saying that uh, while the fundamental presuppositions of, a, of Christianity have been questioned and rejected, we still act out a Christian morality. So he writes, um, the victim of a crime still cries out to heaven for justice, and the conscious lawbreaker still deserves punishment for his or her actions. So even like a, a self-declared nihilist um, still acts out basic human um, morality or, and, and even then Christian morality as, you know, as it has developed and been defined over the, the generations. And I think it even goes deeper than that, if that's possible. One of the contradictions within, within the materialist worldview, for example, is that we can't account for value and morality. Um, but science gets it done well, science can't get those get things done without either of those things. So, a, sign, a philosophical scientific worldview can't account for values and um, and morals. But at the same time, this, a scientist engaging in science can't do science without values and morals, in a sense, which I'll get to. Um, for example, without value, there can be no recognition of truth and no defense of truth in contrast to lies. So how would we recognize truth without a sense of value as being more valuable than lies? Because the, the, the hidden presupposition or the hidden principle behind the idea of truth is that truth is more valuable than lies, right? When you're judging something as being true or not, the, the inescapable um, presupposition of that is that the truth will be, will be better. 
So I don't think there's anyone in the, in the entire world that will look at two things, one being obviously more true than the other, and will value the other one simply because it is a lie. Well, there may be, well, now that I think about it, there there will be people like that who do that for a um, for a reason that is like expedient in the world. So they will have a goal, which again, they value, and they might see a lie as being a an effective means of achieving that goal. But still, even for a person who will value a lie in that sense, they are still doing it because they've they value it for another reason. They can't escape the 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 sense and the experience of valuing one thing more than another. And without that that basic um, that basic value of truth over lies, for instance, we couldn't defend a theory as somehow inherently better than a uh, better than a, a worse one or a, or a false theory. So a scientist, a scientist, for instance, who can't rationally account for the presence of the presence and objectivity of value in the world, has no business um, defending the the truth or validity of any of their theories, because they have no justification for why a good theory would would be better than a false theory if they can't defend the existence of values. And that's a point that uh, that Sam Harris actually makes, even though I don't think he can back it up um, to any great degree. Um, but we'll get that into uh, a, in a future show, I think. Now, I'm going to read some comments right now. Um, going back, how to be... Heaven help you if you drop a butter knife and it shatters your glass. Don't know what that is referenced to, but maybe I missed something. Some of them hide. Some of them hide from this behind strict materialism, materialistic determinism, fatalism, biological machinery. Yep. Joe, gaining knowledge about the world is a noble value that everyone pursues by default because we are ignorant, but it has to be predicated on the existence of an objective reality. Otherwise, it descends into subjectivity, for which there is at the same time a lot of scope in this world, including the idea and practice of creating reality mechanic. One could also argue that science without values comes up with the atom bomb. Joe, science without morality, better said. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, the butter, line, the butter knife comment was referencing strict dinner tables. <laughs> yes. Well, there are, there are values to be had in dinner etiquette, but they serve other values and are not necessarily... Um, good in and of themselves. I'll just put it that way. So, well, talking about science with mor without morality, I think that's a, it's kind of a, a paradoxical thing to think of because I'd, I think really that science itself has a moral imperative built into it in that truth is better than falsehood and that, uh, you know, good theories are better than bad theories and that that leads to a type of moral imperative in that science should map to reality like you were saying, Joe, about uh, objectivity, the, you need to accept the objectivity of a, of a real world, and that results, for instance, should be, re should be accurately reported. These are like moral injunctions about the way we should behave. And um, you'd think that, well, I think a lot of, well, any good scientist will, will at least know this on an implicit, instinctive level, but there are plenty of scientists that, that uh, don't think that, you know, 
they are not convinced that one theory is better than another, but they aren't convinced in their own um, self-advancement and the advancement of their own careers, and that's why they, they will fake results. Or, the, you know, they're just, um, they might not even be advancing their own career. It's just a paycheck, right? They, they get funding to produce certain results, and then they produce those results. And that would be, uh, you know, you could say that that's a violation of, you know, uh, a, science, a violation of good science, but it is really just immoral behavior when it comes down to it. And that's why, you know, I think that that's why I think there is a moral imperative built into science, but that it gets ignored. And I think Peterson would, would argue it gets lost when we have lost touch with the stories, you know, the narrative, the actual justification, which can be defended philosophically, you know, with a, with a rational philosophical outlook. And um, when those get lost, we descend into this kind of amoral chaos. Joe says, faking results is what they call reality creation. And it works for a while, maybe. Yeah, it works. Uh, yeah, it works for a while. And then eventually, you know, it, it's a, if it, if it falls apart, it has fallen apart at the, usually at a great cost, you know, like the, the whole Ansel Keys thing, I think that was his name, with uh, the 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 China study and the all the, the the studies that said saturated fats are bad for you. So we've had like what fifty to seventy years of people, or maybe it's not been that long. I can't remember what the exact year was, but you know, generations essentially of people avoiding one of the foods that's most healthy for them. And they're getting sicker and sicker. And then, it, you know, all of a sudden, only recently in recent years, it's like, oh, turns out all those studies were just wrong. Some of them deliberately so and deliberate lies, not just, you know, faulty science in the sense of looking for something and getting a result and thinking it's true, but in, in actual fact being wrong. Some of this was cynically, um, cynically and malevolently motivated. And if not malevolently, then um, just out of a sense of personal gain, uh, which is an affront to science, I'd say. So um, I was talking about the, the morality built into, I want to say, what if, what if your value system says that it is good for people to be sick? Um, well, I think that would require uh, a back and forth conversation I don't have any. I'd have to think through how I would approach that. But uh, if you ever want to call in, just uh, feel free to do so. Maybe we can talk about that next week. Um, what if a val oh, now I'm thinking about it. What if your value system says that it is good for people to be sick? Well, just first of all, the you know the pat obvious answer for me would that would be that your value system is founded on um, a bad story. And is not actually, you know, ob objectively true, but we'd have to. I think we'd have to get into specifics about that. But uh, continuing on with that, with my idea about morality being built into the idea of truth itself, and therefore in science, um, just kind of restating something that I said before. If a if a scientist's philosophy, you know, their justification for what they're doing, um, the worldview which in they fit their practice of science, if that can't adequately affirm the reality of truth and value, they have no business trying to convince anyone of the rightness of their thoughts. 
Same goes for the postmodernists, right? They have no business trying to convince ever, anyone that they are right about anything when they deny that truth is actually a reality and has any value. Um, the scientific worldview, which um, with, well, it's got th three characteristics associated with it. I'd call, I'd say the, the sensory mode of perception that is purely sensory. Um, it's atheism and it's materialism. Um, that worldview is not one in which life can be rationally accepted as intrinsically and I'd even say religiously meaningful. So that's where I think Sam Harris goes wrong, but we'll get into that next week. Meaning and value cannot be reduced to matter and motion, and as such there is no justification for behaving morally, and yet we continue to do it. Um, in Peterson's words, Peterson's words, this does not change the fact that our integrity has vanished. Uh, our theory contradicts our practice. Um, we implicitly act on numerous presuppositions that we explicitly deny. We've lost ground. We've lost the ground for values, and thus any coherent account of justification for morality. So, how exactly did this happen? Um, maybe briefly, we'll get into that, and then we'll end the show for today. And I'll continue on with this, I think, by making videos on it. But um, as if anyone, I hope people have been able to read a book that we recommended a few weeks ago, uh, Collingwood's 1924 book, Speculum Mentis. That is basically Latin for mirror of the mind or looking glass of the mind. Um, as he pointed out there, that the biggest error of scientific thought is its relentless abstraction from concrete facts. So those, those abstractions are then taken as a full account of reality, which, as Collingwood put it, is the error of abstraction, of failing to realize that subject and object, condition and conditioned, ground and consequence, particular and universal, can only be distinctions which fall within one and the same whole, and that this whole can only be the infinite fact which is the absolute mind. So the mathematician and philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, he called this the, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. This is also called um, in philosophy, just um, you, they, the, the, the word they use is reification. It's making an abstraction real. Um, and in, in Whitehead's words, it's mistaking the abstract for the concrete. And the concept of matter, Whitehead argued, was just such an abstraction. Um, and I think, well, Collingwood did a similar thing. So in, uh, in his 1925 book, Science in the Modern World, Whitehead observed that scientific materialism had even then become, quote, too narrow for the concrete facts which are before it for analysis. This is true even in physics and is more especially urgent in the biological sciences, end quote. The same goes for consciousness, value, meaning, and morality. Peterson describes uh, what the scientific world might look like to an ancient steeped in the mythic mindset. He writes, The formal object, as conceptualized by modern scientifically oriented consciousness, might appear to those still possessed by the mythic imagination, if they could see it as all, at all, as an irrelevant shell as all that was left after everything intrinsically intriguing had been stripped away. For the pre-experimentalist, the thing is mostly, truly, 
the significance of its sensory properties as they are experienced in subjective experience, in affect or emotion. So Whitehead's solution was not to see objects as valuable in relation to the subject perceiving them, but to see them as actual embodiments of significance, meaning, or value. So when we experience another being, for instance, as value, uh, we, we're not just experiencing its value for us, you know, how valuable is it in relation to us or what it can do for us, but its value in and of itself, its value to itself. And uh, I'm not sure if Peterson makes a similar argument, but, uh, but he does call this outlook a mythic notion of individual value, of, in, of in, intrinsic right and responsibility. Because basically, you know, what Peterson says is that what he said, well, I'll give an example, in his, one of the, the first or the second debate with, actually it was the first debate with Sam Harris in Vancouver on the, you know, 12th or the 14th or something, he wrote that um, it's not that he uh, believes, as, it's not necessarily that he believes in God, but he, that he acts as if God exists. And part of part of of acting in that way is acting as if every person is an individual who has intrinsic value. In in religious terminology, that would be as if they have the spark of the divine. And that's something that Peterson talks about, um, you know, whenever he's talking about this subject. And what Whitehead did was he built his philosophy around that being an actual. Uh, an actual claim that can be defended as true, that every being is at its very root um, and a manifestation of value, and that the the life process, actually the, the the process of the entire universe as a whole, is one of attainment of value, and we see that in um, we can see a a pretty what's a pretty stark or pretty distinct or can't re- I don't know what word I'm looking for. Um, a good example of that in just evolution where we see um, you can look at the evolutionary process as just a random, um, a random meandering of, you know, evolutionary processes that has no value and no, no higher or lower goal. It's just everything on the same level playing field and, and n- no one thing can be, better than any other in any terms, but, or you can see it in terms of the attainment of value in a, and I think that's the, I think that's the, the default mode that people see the world in terms of, and then see evolution in terms of. And I think that's why like creationism and intelligent design are so popular, especially among the, you know, the Christian world is because it's not just because they're defending a, um, you know, a religious ideology, but because when you look in the world, it seems to be goal or uh, it seems to be goal-based or um, the philosophers would call it teleological. You see an attain, like uh, you see a direction in evolution towards the attainment of value in the, in the, in and in the sense of, well, the example being the evolution and appearance of humans who have such uh, such greater possibilities for themselves than the highest form of any other animal. And we see that in our cultural achievements and our technological, scientific, and moral achievements. And so for Whitehead, 
the entire universe is a process towards which, you know, with a, a goal of some sort towards which the, the whole universe is moving. Now, that that goal is conditioned by anything in the present, and what morality would be would be to determine the right choice at the right time in the present. So it's dependent on the conditions that you are in, and it's not like there's a, a rule, a moral rule book where it's like, in this situation, I'll do always do this. It's always context dependent. It always has to take into account, like, all of the conditions, all of the context at any given moment, at any, with every given choice. And so there's no, there's never an easy, there's never an easy choice. But there always is a set of choices that are better than a larger set of other bad choices. And that would be what finding meaning and making the moral choice would be. And I hope I, I hope that made sense. But uh, before we end, I'm just going to read a few more comments. Okay. Aeneas wrote, Or people who think that there are too many people or that human beings are a menace to the earth, such people will not shy away from vaccines or other medicines to correct that. Joe, the stories, Bible, etc., are necessary because they're is a broad objective reality that visits humanity every so often, and those stories are the best way to transmit the truth of that objective reality across time, because it's pretty complex and can't easily been, be transmitted to large numbers of people except by myth. That's a good point. Tree Sparrow, don't bother me with your conscientious scruples. After all, the thing's superb physics. Enrico Fermi on the H-bomb. Yeah. Jeez. And how to be, it has not been ruled out that the life system and its evolutionary mechanism don't form a mind of some sort, I would say, or part of one. Yes, I would agree with that. All right. And with that said, thanks everyone for tuning in. Next week we'll be back. Um, I should have at least one of my co-hosts with me next week. And we are actually planning on um, taking a look at the the Sam Harris Jordan Peterson debate. Um, so look forward to that. Who knows? We might change our minds, but um, that's what we're planning at the moment. So thanks everyone for tuning in and I'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.